Hello, I'm Kristen Marchand, and joining me today are Danielle and Roger Paul. We are members of the Apiango Readers Theatre, a troupe of dedicated volunteers who perform classic literature and works of local history. Today, we're here at the Pembroke Public Library and a show called Ailments and Ointments, the 1847 Letters of Dr. Codd. It's a rare and wonderful presentation based on a unique eyewitness account of the early days of Pembroke. So early, in fact, that Pembroke exists only in the eyes of Dr. Francis Codd as a little village tucked along the shores of the Ottawa River where it expands to what was then known as the Upper Alumet Lake. In February 1847, some 173 years ago, Francis Codd left his home in Norfolk, England and came here to a place along the Muskrat River. It had less than two dozen homes, rustic shanties, hewn out of the nearby forest. There were a couple of stores, a grist and sawmill, and two small churches, one Methodist, one Catholic. Curiously, it wasn't known as Pembroke, but rather Moffatville, named after Alexander Moffat, who had built Moffatville's lone grist mill. Dr. Codd was trained as a physician both in London, England and Montreal, Quebec. He was an unlikely 24-year-old when he first arrived, but for whatever his medical skills, he had a unique and telling eye. He saw things like nobody else saw them, and he wrote letters home to his family and friends back in Norfolk that proved a rich tapestry of life here 173 years ago. His was not a tedious kind of observation. He kept no Facebook jottings listing what he ate for breakfast or how he had ticked off the top 10 tourist sites to see in the upper reaches of the Ottawa. Rather, he told a story of the social and economic life of the town with the vivid brushstrokes of a painter. His words are so rich with the character of this place that it may sometimes sound as though he were still living and breathing right here among us. So sit back and listen carefully to the hustle and bustle of Pembroke 173 years ago this very winter. February 12, 1847. Moffatville, Pembroke, Canada West. My dear father and mother, I have not received your letter, posted, I suppose, on the 1st of January, but expect to get it from Mr. Cottrell's next Monday. I have a good deal to say, I expect this time, and therefore I will give you an account today of my proceedings, since I last wrote, in the form of a journal. And when I get your letter, I will finish up. January 26th. Started from Montreal for Bytown in a covered sleigh drawn by two horses tandem and containing Her Majesty's mail, which filled a large leather sack as big as a comb, four bushels of wheat. It was a windy day with the thermometer at zero and snow falling and drifting, and therefore I felt by no means warm. Although I was well clothed for traveling and had two buffalo skins to myself as I was the only passenger. We dined at Saint-Eustache, and after dinner, I went to sleep in the sleigh, and was awoke by a great shock and found myself struggling under the great mailbag, for the sleigh had run against the top of a stump or something of the kind, and was capsized and being dragged through snow by the horses. However, the horses ran into a farmyard and were soon stopped, and no harm was done. 
but I did not go to sleep again, and was capsized, in a more gentle manner, three times more before my journey was finished. After being delayed some time by several drifts of snow, we were obliged to leave the covered sleigh three miles from Carillon and to take a small open one. We traveled all night by the broad moonlight on the middle of the Grand River, as the Ottawa is very appropriately called, and arrived at Bytown next day at 3 p.m. The banks of the river at Bytown are more than 100 feet in perpendicular height, and the town itself is one of the best planned and most flourishing in Canada. It is about 20 years since the site of it was a wilderness, and now it contains 8,000 inhabitants, and will probably be made a city next session of Parliament. The richest people in it are those who settled there when it was considered as out of the way as Miramichi and Moffatville are now. Miramichi is about a mile from Moffatville, and the latter is sometimes called Upper Miramichi. I stopped at the uh, L'Esperance Hotel and there met a Mr. Bowen of Moffatville who told me that if I did not succeed in Bytown I should be sure to do so in his place. January 28th. Moved to Mr. Simpson's tavern intending to stay there some days. But he and several other people told me that there was such a good opening for a doctor in Miramichi that I determined to go there instead of settling in Bytown where there are six doctors. So I went to about all of the taverns in Lower and Upper Bytown to see about a passage, as there is no regular courier. I found eight residents of Pembroke Township going up, who said I was much wanted there, and they would take me there and my boxes for nothing if they had had room for me on their sleighs. At last, I was obliged to hire a horse and cutter with the driver, for which I had to pay £3.10. January 29th. We started at about 9.30 a.m., passed over the Union Superior Bridge and the Chaudière Falls, but could not see a bit of them on account of the smoky kind of vapour coming from them. This vapour, of course, will arise in a less degree from any large waterfall, even in summer. But on a cold day in winter, it arises from any water that does not freeze, or from rapids, for instance, or air holes. We passed through Elmer, which is a large village nine miles above Bytown and has three churches. It is the only village till you come to Miramichi. After traveling 42 miles, we stopped for the night at a small tavern by the roadside. We fell in with company and traveled the greater part of the day with a sleigh containing a woman and two young men, her sons, who I was delighted to find spoke with the most beautiful Norfolk twang. They were from Felthorpe and the woman told me that they landed at Bytown nine years ago with only three shillings in cash and a little luggage and now they own a farm of 100 acres partly cleared and that was 20 miles inland from Bytown. Lock sir, she observed. If the poor critters at home only knew what a place Canada is, it will be good for them. I heartily agree with her. January 30th started at 8 a.m. and after traveling 38 miles partly on the ice and partly through the woods we were obliged to stop for the night at a log cabin and where we were obliged to sleep on a buffalo robe before the fire. I should have had nothing to eat but potatoes and bread if my driver had not, with great forethought, memory of the path I suppose, provided himself with a bag full of cold pork and cheese and which, from its appearance, one might have thought he sat on all the way. 
I did not sleep much, as it was so cold when the fire got low, and was glad enough to get underway next morning. January 31st. At 7 a.m. we started, and still better pleased when we arrived at Moffatville at about 3 o'clock. Moffatville is beautifully situated on the south side of the upper Alumet Lake, an expansion of the Ottawa, and is about 100 miles from Bytown. It has risen into existence within the last three years and contains a gristmill and sawmills, two stores, 18 to 20 houses, and now a doctor. Miramichi sits about one mile lower down and is about twice as old, having been established six years ago, and is nearly twice as large. It boasts a doctor, but no mills, and this doctor, Dr. Judge, and myself are the only doctors within 50 miles. Most people think Moffatville will go ahead of Miramichi on account of its being at the mouth of the Indian River and having the mills and timber slide, which brings hundreds of raftsmen here for a few weeks during the spring and fall. Moffatville is also the highest settlement on the Ottawa, although there are a few scattered farmers for 50 miles higher up. The lakes, etc., are laid down wrong in both my maps, but it is, I suppose, a little below the 46th parallel of latitude. The country around about is not very civilized, as you may suppose, and the roads, such as they are, run sometimes for several miles through the forest without a clearing to be seen. There are many small lakes, such as Muskrat Lake, Mud Lake, Bound Lake, Lake Dory, etc. If I had had my, my choice from a bird's eye view of Canada, I could not have found a lovelier spot than this must be in the summer. Upper Alumet Lake is between two and three miles broad and seven miles long. I'm told it's very deep and full of fish. In the distance to the north are a range of very high hills, here called mountains, but I think hardly high enough to merit that appellation any more than Montreal Mountain does. At present, the whole country has been frozen up and covered with snow to the depth of about three feet. It looks rather wild, but not gloomy, like the winter scenery in England. Fort William is probably marked on your map and is just 10 miles further up and on the north bank of the Ottawa River, on the opposite side from Moffatville. There's no church or any description nearer than 12 miles, but they are now building two small wooden ones on the road between the two villages. One is Catholic, the other Methodist. There are very few French about here, and Protestants and Catholics are about equal in number, I think. February 14th, 1847. I have taken lodgings at Live's Tavern, and shall, if all goes well, stop here till I can afford to furnish a house for myself. For a ready-furnished house is, of course, not to be had here. Everything is dearer here than in any other part of Canada, but cash is more abundant and doctor's pay is in proportion. This is on account of the timber cutting, or lumbering as it is called, which is carried on on a larger scale here, I suppose, than in any other part of the world. There are several people here, in fact almost all who have been here any time, who have made fortunes. And I think I could do the same in less than 12 years if I had 1,000 pounds in hand. 5,000 pounds will be reckoned a fortune in Canada, and it really is so. All farming produce meets with a ready market for cash here from the lumber merchants. And yet a 100-acre lot half cleared sells for about 50 pounds, and a village building lot in, the, in this rising place are only about 12 pounds 10. I was soon obliged to buy a horse harness and light sleigh called a cutter, which cost me altogether, being second-hand, 
£21. I pay £3 a week for my board, etc., and £2 a month for my horse. I have now been here exactly two weeks, today being February 14th, and if my patients pay me, which I suppose they will do sooner or later, I shall have made during the first week here £1.17 and 6 and during the second week £2.12 and 6 Of this, I have only received 7 and 6 as of yet. I bought my horse off Mr. Lythe, and I think he has treated me fairly, for the horse goes first rate and has the character of being a hardy, serviceable animal. My host's family are Protestant Irish. At least himself and wife were born in Ireland, though not as children, of which they have two, both girls, one about 16 and the other about 12. They are very nice people, but I shall be glad enough when I can leave the tavern on account of the noise and drinking always going on. If any of my brothers, from Charles down to Frederick, have a mind to come to Canada and study medicine, etc., now is the time to say so. They might pass in four years, allowing two at McGill College and the Montreal Hospital, and the whole expense for that time, including clothes and everything, might with economy be covered by £100, which I could easily spare if I go on at the rate I have begun. Send me an answer on this subject when you write. February 15th. I received your letter this morning and was truly sorry to hear of poor Arthur's illness and its effects. I hope he is better by this time. I am afraid I shall never see you all again, at least in this world. I don't see what good Henry's appointment will do him, for I suppose the pay is almost nothing and we have already seen how little good conduct will avail against money and interest. I think he would be much sooner able to pay his way by trying his fortune in Canada. But I don't wish anyone to come to Moffatville who is not willing to live on salt, pork, and potatoes every day of the week, and, in fact, to make the best of every avoidable grievance without grumbling. I am told there will be lots of wildfowl in a few weeks, and as Mr. Lythe has a good gun, I don't intend to eat fat pork then. I have not seen a fresh newspaper since I left Bytown, but I had a letter with yours from Mr. Cottrell today in which he says that Mr. MacDonald, the proprietor of the transcript, means to send me his paper gratis till I can afford to pay for it. Mr. Cottrell says he expects to hear that I am in Oregon soon. I shall, as you observe, want house linen soon, but it would cost nearly double if sent out from England though dear enough here. Besides, if I keep house at all, I shall be better able to spare the money than you will. So with many thanks, I will decline your offer on that score. If I was married, I could live in this place cheaper than I can as a single man. So if you know of any young lady who has a mind to rough it in Canada, can you send her out to me in the box you intended for the linens? <laughs> You advise me not to give up the idea of farming as well as practicing medicine. To work on a farm with my own hands and practice medicine as well would be impossible. Firstly, because I would not have time to do both. Secondly, because patients would not like it, for a doctor is a tip-top man in the back settlements. And thirdly, because I have not cash enough now, but I will soon own a farm or two if I make money as fast as appearances promise. I can hardly believe in these appearances yet, however, for if I go on as I have begun and get paid, I shall make a fortune in less than ten years. My love to all, especially poor Arthur. Believe me, your ever affectionate son, Francis Cobb. April 20th, 1847, Pembroke Township, Canada West. 
My dear father and mother, your letters have reached me quite safe. I should be glad to send you a different newspaper now and then, but it is not easy to manage for they are scarce up here. The transcript, however, contains more reading manner than any paper in Canada. I was rather amused with your suspicion that my friends in Montreal might be connected with some religious order. What queer ideas you Norfolk people have about popish plots and the like. I assure you that I feel very much obliged to you and your offers of assistance, but I don't see what you could send me that would answer, except money, and I do not wish to trouble you in that way until I am more in need of it than I am at present. I shall have now and then a great wish to see you and my dear friends again and to take a rather more ceremonious departure than I did before. When I put this wish into execution, a few pounds will be of greater benefit to me then than at present. Sometimes I almost wish I was an assistant or a doctor on board a ship and that I could ramble about all my life, for I fret a great deal about my patients. That's a fact. I have been very successful as yet, and I am in great favor with all the people about here, except Dr. Judge. But the cares and anxieties of a doctor's life are greater even than I had expected. Here I am left entirely to myself, for Dr. Judge is an ignorant fellow, and worse, there is no other doctor that, I, that can be called upon to consult with, in, as in England or in the civilized parts of Canada today. I've seen the deathbed of the oldest settler in this part of the province and how any man can like a profession which consists of attending such things, I cannot think. When a doctor is sent for, of course, people expect him to do a great deal. What could I do with a man who had been a drunkard all his life and now had water in the chest, diseased stomach and liver, and chronic inflammation of the bladder with dropsical swelling of the extremities. Oh, I'm a great grumbler, and shall be so to the end of the chapter, I'm afraid, unless I get more unconcerned about my patients than I am at present. You talk about sending me a plate of clay church. Here is an amateur drawing of Miramichi church built all of wood, about 40 feet by 20 feet. The Methodist church is just the same. There are no pews or even seats yet, and the windows are not yet finished. We had mass there the day before last, and pretty cold it was. The north wind whistled through, and it came fresh from the lake, and the floor was mostly a sheet of ice. This is one of the longest winters ever known in Canada. The thaw I mentioned in my last letter went off, and the ice is only now beginning to get unsafe. A fortnight ago, the main ice was covered with water two feet deep, and sometimes more, yet it would bear. I went with Mr. Lythe over both Alumet Lakes to a farm of his brother's 18 miles from here. Coming home next day, it was very stormy, and we had great difficulty in getting along in some places. I had a girl in my cutter, and we got capsized and rolled into a mess of water and snow near three feet deep. At another place, four horses could hardly stir Mr. Lye's loaded sleigh. Altogether, it was quite exciting. Last Monday, I had a most troublesome drive, for the water on the ice had frozen, and yet would hardly bear our weight. I broke through the upper layer several times, and once thought I was gone altogether, for there was three feet between the two layers of ice, and I had great work to get the horse out. A span of horses got into the water the day before, but were got out, 
and it's not often that the driver is drowned. My practice keeps on at about the same rate or a little more than when I last wrote. I have not received much cash, but I expect my bills are all good or nearly so. In a week or so, I shall be able to get pasture for my horse at a dollar a month. People are now busy making maple sugar and molasses, and very good stuff it is too. Quite a different affair to the bad sample Robert Gilderstone sent home. The Indians also bring lots of pike and perch, sometimes venison. A Sunday or two ago, we all took a sleigh ride to Fort William and from thence to the mouth of Deep River. Near Fort William, the river grows very wide and full of islands, and at the mouth of Deep River, there is a mountain I should think over 2,000 feet high. A little above Fort William is the Petawawa River and the plains, of which the latter are a sandy waste on each side of the river, covered in summertime with strawberries and blueberries. April 21st. Today is quite warm and even hot in the sunshine, and the snow is thawing at a great rate. I went onto the ice today and found it so bad that the horse's feet sunk two or three inches in it. I got ashore as soon as I could. A man and two horses broke through yesterday, but were all saved. The ice on the Indian River has broke up, and the wafer is pouring over the timber slide and dam in great style. I think the winter must be over now. I believe I have no more news, so with remembrances to all, I remain your affectionate son, Francis Collins. P.S. These little prints out of a Montreal almanac, perhaps they may amuse somebody. June 19th, 1847, Pembroke, Canada West. My dear father and mother, I wrote to you last about the 20th of May, I think, and since then have received two letters from you dated April 18th and May 17th. I have received all your letters, sooner or later, I'm sure, and I expect that you have received all mine. But if you had any idea of the roads in this uncivilized place, you would not wonder at a little irregularity. Sometimes the mail is only three days and nights going from here to Montreal, and sometimes a fortnight. I have sold my horse, as I think I mentioned before, and have bought a small bark canoe off an Indian of the name of Stokwa, which is of more use to me now than a horse, and moreover, does not eat like the aforesaid machine. These kind of canoes are very handy for getting down rapids and up portages, but a man who can't swim ought never to get into one like mine, for winking one's eye will almost capsize her. When I come home, I will try to bring her with me. They are most curiously put together, and no one but the Indians can either make or mend them. Business is rather slack with me just now, but while the rafts were here running the slide, I used to make, on paper, from one to two pounds every day, so I have no reason to complain on that account. But this part of Canada is supported entirely by the timber trade. It is so bad this year, with so little prospect of reviving, that I am afraid I shall not be able to collect above half my bills, amounting now to between 40 pounds and 50 pounds currency. All things considered, I have decided on leaving Pembroke in the fall, and shall most likely come home and try to get some of you to come out to Canada next year with me. I am very sure that I can always get along pretty comfortably in Pembroke, because while I have so much owed to me, I can always get credit. But I don't like that system and I don't like anything here but the scenery and lakes. In the western part of Canada, the scenery is not so beautiful as here, but there is better land. The country fills up faster, for no immigrants come here. 
and prices for everything are much lower. A few weeks ago, there was a great fight here between the French and British with pickets, large pegs for holding the timber together, and several people were dreadfully beaten. A few nights ago, some raftsmen quarreled with Mr. Lye's barkeeper, a quiet, inoffensive fellow, and he knocked a man who struck him down and then hid himself. In less than half an hour, about 50 men were in the house, swearing they would tear him limb from limb and pull the house down if they could not find him any other way. It was with great difficulty they were persuaded not to do so or to set fire to it. The man is now obliged to keep on the provinces and to carry my pistol about with him for fear of his life. I don't believe there is any part of the Western states so uncivilized as this. Certainly there is no part of Canada peopled by such a set of savages, mild when stroked, but fierce when provoked, and no law or civil power within a hundred miles to control them. If I were in Potter's situation, I would certainly sell the livings if I could get enough for them to pay off all creditors and land in Canada with enough to buy a cleared farm and provisions and clothes for the first year. He would then be independent, and it would be his own fault if he did not make ends meet. And surely it would be worth sacrificing some businesses for that. The main art of living in Canada is to do with as little cash as possible. And if a man has a farm, he can raise his own flour and pork, butter, cheese, sugar, fowls, and wool, for which he will generally get an equivalent quantity of cloth at a mill, if he cannot weave it himself, and whatever else he may want will come to very little even in cash. Most storekeepers, especially in the West, take wheat for anything and then send it to the exporting merchants who give cash for it. I have had nothing in the shape of meat since I've been up here but barreled pork and fish of our own catching. Yet I would not sacrifice anything in the way of independence for all the luxuries that ever were created. You say you cannot go on living as you do now, in debt, and not able to keep near your income. If so, surely it would be better to emigrate at once, however disagreeable to your present feelings, than get deeper into debt. If people would emigrate before they are ruined, instead of after it, as most do, it would save them much hardship. Remember that every shilling you save would go for 15 pence in Canada, and every sovereign would be one pound, four shillings, four pence. I don't think your map has this part of the Ottawa right yet. There are no such rapids as the Shwisha Rapids on the river. The rapids between the Alumet Lakes and the mouth of the Mattawa, which runs from Lake Nipissing, are the Swisha and the Roche Capitan. Margaret Lythe and me are the best of friends, but nothing more now. And I consider I have had a fortunate escape. Had I been a Protestant, we should certainly have been married. My hair has grown again and is quite a trouble now there is so much of it and no barber to cut it. About a fortnight ago, a carpenter of the name of MacLeod and myself commenced to make a boat and she is now finished. All but the sails and stopping a few leaks. She is 13 feet 3 inches long, 3 feet 3 inches wide and 25 inches deep and is to be cutter rigged. I expect she will sail beautifully. Yesterday it blew hard and the lake was rough, so I got up a very small sail and sailed across to the island. Then we got out the oars, and as MacLeod could not row at all, after pulling against wind and waves some time, I found them too large for me to scull with. So we went ashore, 
and after getting wet up to our necks in hauling the boat out of the surf, we found a shanty full of French women. And in the course of time, we contrived to make them understand that we wanted an axe to cut a piece off the oars. At first, they either did not or would not understand us and gave us a blunt knife, which we began to use for want of anything better. It was much to their amusement. We then met with a passenger and rode home in great style. This is the first boat that ever floated on the upper Alumet Lake, and most of the youngsters up here have never seen a boat. Margaret Lythe, for one. The day before, I went down into the lower Alumet Lake with my canoe and back again. I had to carry the canoe over two portages and paddle 14 miles, which was a good day's work for one person, for paddling is much harder than rowing. I went through some beautiful spots among the islands and small lakes, but was almost eaten up by mosquitoes. This is the worst place for them I ever was in. I have now a patient on the Alumet Island named Brush, who is quite civilized for these parts. He is a cute old Yankee from Connecticut and has two very nice-looking, well-educated girls. They live in a shanty, but have evidently seen better days. The old fellow was a magistrate on the Rideau, I believe. I have dined with them several times, and people say, very knowingly, that they know what the boat is made for. But I must have breathing time at any rate before I dive into the depths of love again. Moreover, I don't want to be tied to Pembroke, once bit twice shy, you know. And I want to see my mammy again in the fall if I live long enough. I remain your affectionate son, Francis Cobb. P.S. As soon as our boat is fixed, I mean to take a voyage of discovery up to the Swisher Rapids, 50 miles, and as far up the Petawawa as the first rapids. So I guess I'll send you my log book by next letter. How I wish we all lived on Lake Huron. Deal boards are only 30 shillings per thousand feet, and you can sail to the Falls of Niagara in one direction and to Sault Ste. Marie in Chicago in the other. A vessel lately cleared at Chicago, Illinois, for Liverpool to come through the Canadian canals and through 1,700 miles of St. Lawrence River water. A few weeks ago, a young man got frightened in running the Kel Boté Rapids north of the Alumet Island and jumped out of the canoe and was drowned. His friends had a coffin made for him, but his body has not been found, and his ghost appears at the coffin every night. I have given Mrs. Lythe your address and told her to write to you if anything unpleasant should happen to me. So don't fancy I'm drowned till you hear from her to that effect. August 15th, 1847. Pembroke, Canada West. My dear mother, I wrote to you last on the 13th of July and received your letter of 1st of July in due time. I'm still in complete enjoyment of my senses and will remember your advice. I should, as you suggest, live in a more in-the-world place, but unfortunately, Pembroke is not likely to be connected with Bytown by steamer for many years on account of the numerous rapids and falls between here and Portage de Four. Although I can just get a living here, I should not like to start afresh with 40 pounds or 50 pound in hand which I shall not have in cash, I am afraid, for some time, given the present state of the timber trade. Next time I settle, I will manage better than I have done here. If I had rented a house, 
I might have had all my provisions and many other articles from patients who, though well off, cannot pay in cash at present. If I had had a servant living in the house, 40 pound a year in cash would have covered all my expenses, including the keeping of a horse all year round. As it is, I'm obliged to pay for everything and can take only cash in payment, by which bad management, I expect, I shall have to leave half my bills unsettled. I mean bills due to me, if I leave Pembroke in a month or two, which I fully intend to do, unless I am much disappointed. I have been more busy during the last month and have had two cases of ship fever, one of which died and the other got well. If I once start for home from Pembroke, neither Jesuits, ill-tempered captains, or anything but sickness shall prevent me from carrying out my intention this time. But I cannot say that I got much pleasure from my visit, for when people find I do not go to church, they will ask the reason, and then the truth must be out. What will Parkinson say, who used to get in a passion when Catholics or even Pusseyites were only mentioned, or Mr. Woods, who will hear nothing but his own opinion on any subject? I'm glad to hear Aunt E has had a bite at last and hope the fish won't break his hold before he is safely landed. I'm happy also to hear that Daddy is better. I shall prescribe a sea voyage for him when I come home. The weather has been most awfully hot lately. The thermometer one day reached 105 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. It now feels pleasant, though above 80 degrees Fahrenheit every day. The quantity of wild fruit in this part of Canada exceeds all I have ever read of. Raspberries, as good as in your garden, are all so plentiful within a quarter mile of a village that they cannot be gathered as fast as they ripen, even with the assistance of the pigeons. Blueberries are a most delicious fruit, peculiar, I believe, to the northern parts of America. They grow on the banks of rivers and lakes where the soil is sandy and are something between grapes and currants. Ten of us went in a large canoe the other day up to the mouth of the Petawawa to gather them. In a few hours we had a pailful, besides which we ate, which was no small quantity, I can assure you. The people living here preserve a great deal of fruit with maple sugar. I have just received your letter dated July 18th. Don't frighten yourself so much about the canoe and boat. They're not dangerous with common care to those who understand the management of them. And I assure you, I am not quite ready to throw away my life as you seem to imagine. If a man sees no danger in anything, he may undertake beyond what he considers he has skills to overcome. He cannot be guilty of tempting providence, otherwise it would be wrong even to venture on the water for pleasure or in fact to stir out of doors because a storm might arise at any time, though one would always hope for the best. Except a man who wants to commit suicide, which of course you know I do not. I agree with you perfectly in what you say. I consider myself a good swimmer. I have known three men drowned this summer who would probably have been now alive if they had ever learned to swim. They were drowned within their own depth because they had not presence of mind enough to set their feet down, which would scarcely have occurred if they had been able to swim two yards. Last Monday, I went to Fort William in the boat and in the lake above the upper Alumet. 
There are so many rocks now that the water is low that I shall not make my voyage to the Swisha in the boat, but intend to go with Mr. Lythe, who is going to see a farm of his up there in about three weeks. I saw a large Indian camp on one of the islands below Fort William and wished I could have sketched the whole landscape. I am tired of this wild, uncivilized life and intend to start for Montreal at any rate on the 1st of October if I can muster 10 pound, in which case I expect I could in a week of any time. This sum would be enough to take me home and I expect I can always make a living as an assistant even in England. Whenever I find myself master of 50 pound, I will take my final leave of England for some colony again, most likely Canada, but I won't settle in such an out-of-the-way place as Pembroke again. If the government still give $5 a day to doctors at the emigrant sheds when I arrive in Montreal, I may take a trial at it. But if they stink much, I will soon have had enough of that. August 30th, 1847, Pembroke, Canada West. My dear father and mother, I forgot in my last letter to tell you not to send any more letters to Pembroke, as I shall leave this place before the 1st of October, unless prevented by some unforeseen circumstances. I shall be obliged to get Mr. Live to send letters anyway after I leave for England. I am not sure whether I shall stop any time in Montreal or not, so do not write to me again anywhere now unless you hear from me to the contrary. I shall write again before I sail for England, or at any rate in a month from that time. I am going to start for the Swisher Rapids, and perhaps for the Roche Capitan the day after tomorrow, with a carpenter by the name of Mooney, who is going with me. I'll bring you a bottle full of the Swisher to christen the next baby with. My practice still averages more than I want to spend if I could only get paid for what I do in cash. But there's the rub. However, money is getting more plentiful every day now that the lumbermen are coming up from Quebec. And I expect in about a fortnight or three weeks to be able to get enough to start clear from Pembroke and to pay my passage home. Last Saturday, I met with rather an unpleasant adventure. At about 1.30 p.m., I started on a shooting excursion. And about sunset, after following a covey of partridges, I lost the track. This did not perplex me much, as I knew I was not many miles from some part of the Indian River. And, being on high ground, I could still see the sun. I soon came upon the river, but it is a very crooked one, and the banks are very uneven, and so I got, as I thought, upon the highest part of the bank, which is in some places 50 feet or more over the water, clear of ravines and swamps. I thought I was following its course, but when it was nearly dark I found myself just where I had last started from. I now thought I would follow the river and keep within sight of it, in spite of the difficulty of getting through the thick bushes and ravines. After going on in this way some distance, I came to a ravine with such steep sides and such a dark, deep appearance that I could not cross it. And after walking, or rather climbing along it some way, I would neither find any end to it, nor could I find the Indian River again. It was dark, for there was no moon yet. I now sat down on a fallen tree and felt rather dismal and was most dreadfully thirsty, for I had walked more than 20 miles. It had been a pretty hot day, but I dared not drink the river water because it had made me very ill a week or two before, and now was no time to be taken ill. However, I thought I would get into a drier place before I rested for the night, and after going a little further, I found a tree fallen across the ravine, and by that I crossed it. Soon after came a small clearing, so I thought I would get some water at any rate, and if I was far from Pembroke, 
I would stop for the night, but my troubles were not yet over by a good deal, for I found a deserted place, a shanty, nearly all down, so I laid my head on the softest looking log I could find and tried to go to sleep. But I was too thirsty, and moreover, to my great consolation, the moon rose in about a quarter of an hour after I had laid down. I could now proceed at least without risk of breaking any shins. So I set off again, steering northeast by the stars, and in about an hour I came upon a river which, from its course, I knew to be the Muskrat, above its junction with the Indian River. I had not many miles to go before I came to some farms, and a boom across the river, but it had banks which were very high and steep, with an almost impenetrable thicket and swamp. At 11 o'clock p.m. I came to a place where a stick of lumber had been made, and it was about 10 yards cleared and full of chips. So I laid down there, and was just dropping asleep when my attention was drawn to the cracking of a small branch. It struck me directly that this was just the place for a bear, and my gun was loaded with only small shot, worse than useless for a bear, and besides, the flint was wet. I listened, and soon plainly heard some large animal making his way slowly through the bushes towards me, just from the direction I had come. I waited till it was quite sure of the direction he was coming, and then cleared, as they say, around here. In about another mile I came to a farm I knew, but in looking for the boom to cross the river by, I, I fell in, and, finding the water only up to my waist, walked over, and in another hour I was at home, drinking milk by the pailful. Margaret was sitting up for me, and half the village would have been out for me next day if I had not come home. Next time I go so far, I'll take care not to get off the track so late in the evening, and I'll take my pistols with me, for bears will attack men sometimes even in the daytime, and a wounded bear is as bad as a devil himself at any time. I have no more to say at present, so believe me, your affectionate son, Francis. September 14, 1847. Pembroke, Canada West. My dear father and mother, you must excuse such a shabby bit of paper this time, for there is none to be bought in the township, and I had to borrow even this. Since I last wrote on August 30th, I received your letter of July and a newspaper from Mr. Parkinson. In my last letter, I told you not to write to me any more at Pembroke. I mentioned this for fear you should not have received it. As to coming home, I am determined to do so if I can, and as soon as I can, though I am very sure it is not my wisest course, but I want to see you all again before I leave Old England, perhaps forever. If I come home this fall, I shall not wish to stop longer than next March. But how to get out again is already somewhat of a puzzle. If I could get all my bills paid here in Pembroke, the matter would be plain enough. But that I have no hopes of. However, I mean to come home when I can, that's certain. And when home, I mean to get out again when I can. Till then, I can at any rate get my living as an assistant surgeon and could save something if I got such a liberal salary as Parkinson. I am exceedingly glad to say that I do not <coughs> owe a penny to anyone who does not owe me at least as much in return, and that for all the money I want to make up is just my passage money. Do not be afraid that I will ever enter into any religious order, confraternity, or anything of that kind without giving you due notice at any rate and hearing all you have to say against it. I have not been to the Swisher yet. The man who was going with me backed out when the day came, and it is uncertain whether Mr. Lythe will go at all. 
I think I shall give it up now at all events until I am just about to start for Bytown on my way home, when I have mustered money enough. There is no canoe just ready to go, but if I have more cash than I shall want to take me home, then I will perhaps go up to Swisha alone. Two men fought with their jackknives at the mouth of the Petawawa a week or so ago, and one was killed on the spot. The other was taken prisoner at Portage du Four and is now in jail at Perth. He is said to have killed two men before in the same manner. Last Tuesday, I attended the funeral of a patient on the Alumet Island. The corpse had to be taken six miles down the lake on a canoe and was followed by four more log canoes and one small one with myself and another in it. The man was buried on a hill about 200 feet over the lake, a most beautiful spot with a splendid view from it. It was at the corner of a wheat field, but there was no clergyman. This patient's history and that of his wife was rather singular. He was a Yankee raised in Connecticut. Some time after he married, he came to Canada and settled on the Rideau Canal, which was just begun. He became rich, owned a large farm, took contracts on the canal, was an intensive lumber merchant, took the oath of allegiance, and was made a magistrate. After this, he failed and lost his farm and everything and went to Bytown where he was for some years bookkeeper to a merchant and his daughter a dressmaker. By some means last year he was further reduced and he came to live on a small clearing on the Alumet Island. Last February he went to Bytown and was some time under the care of Dr. Cortland, a faith healer. And when he came back unimproved in his health, he borrowed my cutter to take his daughter across the ice with. In May he sent for me, but I could not cure him though I relieved him a good deal, and he said it did him more good than Dr. Cortland did. Now he is buried, almost like a dog. Seek transit Gloria Mundi, thus passes the glory of the world. His wife was a Scotchwoman and sailed when a child from Scotland for New York, which they were two years in reaching, being first captured by a pirate, then by an English privateer, then by a French man of war, and lastly by an English man of war. The daughters are very superior in education to the other girls about here, and I might have fallen in love with them if I had never met with Margaret Evans, which latter lady has certainly made a hole in my heart. I rather suspect her friends regret their objections to my religion, but she is such a coquette that I dare not marry her, though still cannot help liking her. So don't be afraid. Last week I went up to Fort William in my boat and came back the next day. The channel is full of rocks, and the weather was very stormy. Moreover, the Indians sold my grog, and my <coughs> bread got wet, so I had quite enough of it before I got home. I swore I would never go again, but I think I shall. The wild fruit is not finished yet. I have twice been out with the girls, and gathered two pails full of gooseberries, and the blackberries also are very numerous, as well as grapes and wild plums. Mrs. Lythe used 32 pounds of maple sugar in making preserves and says she will give me some to take home with me. For you, she is going to try Norfolk dumplings tomorrow. We had some fresh beef yesterday, the first I have tasted since I was in Bytown last March. September 16th. I meant to have posted my letter yesterday, but I don't think it will be too late even now for the steamer of October 1st. 
I am going this morning to take Mr. Lyde and the boat down to the head of the island between the Alumet Rapids and a still more dangerous rapid called the Last Inny. This island contains about 500 acres and rises from 1 to 200 feet above the water. There are three or four farms on it and great quantities of strawberries, raspberries and grapes. The farm we are going to might be bought now for 40 pounds. There are about 30 acres cleared with a farmhouse and barn. An engineer has lately been sent up here by some Montreal merchant to examine this part of the Ottawa with the view of putting a steamer on it. He has reported that nothing but a long and very expensive canal will ever get a steamer into the upper Alumet Lake and then to get one up to Kel Butte on the other side of Alumet Island. It would require two locks to be made. I'm pretty sure even this will not be undertaken for several years yet and when it is done it will make a town at the foot of the Swisha instead of here. I think though some people do not agree. I think Portage du Four, where the steam navigation of the Ottawa at present terminates and near which place there are almost insurmountable falls and rapids, will go ahead more than any place on this side of Bytown for many years to come. There's no doctor there at present and it is much more civilized country than this. I think when I come out again I'll settle there. I had a patient with a bullet wound a week or two ago. It went directly over the heart, but the bullet was glanced off by hitting a rib. I suspect the powder was damp at all events, but it was a hefty wound. It was a fight between Irishmen and, as a matter of course, was a religious fight. One side consisted of 20 or 30 men and the other only three. The Irish have no idea of giving an enemy fair play, in my opinion. In my opinion, both Protestants and Catholics are the most bigoted fools on the face of the earth. The timber did not sell quite as badly as was expected this year, and people begin to think that the loss of protection duties on the Baltic timber will not matter much after all, for the fact is, Canadian timber is so much better than that from the Baltic. October 12, 1847, Pembroke, Canada West. My dear father and mother, I have had no letter from you since I last wrote, but have had five Norfolk newspapers from Mr. Parkinson, full of election news, which entertain me very much. The mail which left Liverpool September 18th will be up here tomorrow, I expect, and I suppose I shall hear from you by it. During the last month, I have been trying to collect some of the money due to me, but as yet, I have been able to get nothing but promises, partly on account of bad times and partly because the people here for the most part are a most infernal set of rogues. They will not part with a dollar if they can possibly avoid it, and there is no court of law nearer than Perth or Aylmer to make them pay. Mr. Lyde will take a promissory note for pay from me, but I must have £10 or £12 in cash to take me to England, and I am beginning to fear that I shall not be able to muster even that sum out of at least £50 that I am owed. If so, I shall be obliged to borrow off my friends in Montreal, if I may consider them so, and hope that you will pay it when I get home. If I cannot borrow money in Montreal, I must get some employment and stop there, for I am determined not to stay in this uncivilized hole longer than Christmas time at the very latest. I hear that the young man Mr. Talman brought to Bytown instead of me is going ahead wonderfully so I was a precious fool to leave it. The fact of the matter was that Pembroke took my fancy because it was so far off, but I should be wise next time. 
I could live here well enough, though, if I was keeping house for myself. But now I have not the cash to commence with, though I had when I first came up. After all, there is no life so independent as a farmer in Canada. If I now had the 200 pound I landed in Canada with, I would not mind going into the bush and beginning a farm for myself. In this part of Canada, everyone, even the woman, can handle an axe more or less. All that is needed, or so I have been told, to make a good axeman is practice. The best broad axe man on the river is a little fellow not so tall as me by three inches. He never works at making timber under seven and six a day. We had a real Irish wedding here the other day at which I was groomsman and Margaret E. was bridesmaid. There was about 20 men. Between seven and eight gallons of rum and whiskey were drank. That will give you an idea of what a place this is for drinking. I dare say there is as much grog drank in this township as in the city of Toronto, though the population is not a tenth of it. I went up to Fort William in the boat with another man for the spirits, and we had to row 18 miles against the wind. Mr. Mackenzie, the superintendent of the fort, complimented me for being the first person to build a boat so high up the Ottawa. Do not think that I am tired of Canada because I grumble about Pembroke, or because I call it an uncivilized hole, for there is much difference between the, this part of Canada and any other part as between Leathering Set and London. I expect I shall dine with you on Christmas Day, but not much before that. Remember me to Charles and tell him I wish him many happy returns on his birthday. Ditto to Daddy. Believe me, your affectionate son, Francis. P.S. My letter is not so long as usual this time because I have not one of yours to answer and because the weather has been so wet lately that I have not encountered anything interesting as bears or the like. There was a great deer hunt with canoes on the lake a little time ago. Some Indians were in chase of it and it tried to swim across the lake within a quarter of a mile of the village and nearly succeeded though the lake is near three miles wide. I ran the Muskrat River some time ago alone though a man was on the bank of the river to point out the channel to me as near as he could. They are a small rapids, but the canoe is so small that there are very few men in Pembroke who will go on it in calm water. We had been hunting young ducks up the Indian River. I shall write again in a month from this time, I think, most likely from Pembroke. January 12th, 1848, Pembroke. On the Ottawa, Canada West. My dear father and mother, your letter of November 17th reached me about Christmas Day. I had told you not to write again, but as matters turned out, I was sorry for it and was very glad to find a letter in the post office for me when I least expected it. Your letter was a mixture of good and bad news to me. I was glad to hear of the 300 pounds falling in, but I should have wished to have seen Mr. Woods first. Not that I expected to get anything more for myself, but I should like to have parted with him in a more decent way than I did before. However, if spirits know what is going forward in this world, I'm quite sure that he is satisfied by this time that Canada is a much better place than England for anyone with an income under £10,000 a year. I am still in Pembroke, you see, and do not expect to get out of it till I get a money letter from you. The lumber trade is worse than ever and I cannot get paid in any shape as yet. During the last four weeks, I made between four pounds and five pounds in promises, but not made a single copper. 
I had some desperate cases lately and have been successful in my treatment of all of them. One of my patients told me the other day that I was not half ruffian enough for this place. This will give you an idea of the civilized set there are in these diggings, for this fellow was as rough a customer as any of them. I mean to get out of this as soon as I can, but I'm uncertain as to whether I shall go home this summer or not. I think I shall come home for a few weeks if I have money enough. I had a letter from Mr. J. Cotterell in Montreal the same day I received yours. I found Mr. MacDonald had put an advertisement in his paper for a situation as assistant for me. He offered to lend me money to get to Montreal whenever he had any to spare. I thanked him for his kindness, but told him that I had a certainty of a situation in Toronto whenever I could get there, and that you had offered to send me the needful money. I am afraid, however, that the Toronto hospital vacancies will be filled up. If not, I shall soon be getting three pounds seven and ten shillings a month government pay, but dreadful work for it, such as I would not wish for more than a month or two at any salary. I do not wish to practice in England for several reasons. The principal one is because I could not, for though my diploma is second to none in Canada, in fact the only legal one, it would not be a legal one in England. Another is because I really prefer Canada to England under any circumstances. The only drawback to it being the distance from you. Rough as this place is, I should like it very well if I had plenty of money, or in fact, only got paid what is due to me without any bother about it. If I were to come home, I should like nothing better than to talk over our religious notions in good temper. But I must say that I dread the ridicule and contempt I would get from everyone but yourselves. I shall feel more like a stranger in England, I guess, than in Canada. Margaret Evans was taken very ill a week or so ago with a pain in her heart, pericarditis, and was such a bad patient that I was afraid she would die at first, for it is a disease in which the patient must either be killed or cured without delay, but she is now quite well. We had a great ball the week before last, and are going to have another next week. Dancing was kept up till seven o'clock in the morning. They dance highland reels here in great style, but no quadrilles. At our last ball, an Indian came and danced much in the style of a great bear, yelling every now and then like the devil. In the end, he got drunk and tore Mr. Lyth's shirt off his back and was kicked out. He was a savage old rascal and is said to have murdered a white man. Francis Codd eventually got his wish to leave Moffatville. Late in 1848, he returned home to Norfolk, but he didn't last long. Canada was in his blood, and so he came back in less than a year. But in April 1849, instead of heading further west, as his earlier letters might suggest, ironically, Dr. Francis Codd again set up practice in Renfrew County, this time in nearby Horton Township, in the town of Renfrew. Still, Dr. Codd never forgot Moffatville, nor his many friends and patients in Pembroke Township. Indeed, three years into his Renfrew practice, he was still traveling to Moffatville to visit his former patients there. December 12, 1851, Renfrew, Canada West. My dear father and mother, the day after I last wrote you, I was sent for to Pembroke to see my worthy friend and nearly uncle-in-law, Mr. W. Live. I found him in a dreadful state with inflammation 
or rather suppuration, of the right lung. He had been for four weeks under Dr. Judge's care, and ten days before I saw him, a Dr. Purvis of Portage du Four had been seeing him at Judge's request. Now, my professional brethren whose preserves adjoin my own, and more especially my old and valued friend Dr. Judge, have always behaved so uncourteously and unfairly to me on all occasions that I think it better to be at open war with them, and neither ask nor give quarter than that they should in such cases use me as a scapegoat to bear all the responsibility if the case goes badly and try to take to themselves all the credit if it goes well. So I told Live that Judge might see him and give advice if he liked, but I would do just what I thought best myself and either take all the responsibility or none, especially as I considered that neither Judge nor Purvis had made a correct diagnosis of his complaint. In fact, Judge would have it that Live was dying of diseased liver from drinking, and that the inflammation in his chest was nothing to the rest of his complaint. I could not see any symptom of diseased liver at all, and still think that if he had been bled and actively treated for inflammation of the lungs, etc., first caused by exposure to cold and wet, he would now have been alive. In fact, he would not have been laid up a week. As it was, I bled him and treated him in my own way, and during the six days I was with him, he improved so much so that he could sleep well, at least tolerably, and gain strength so much that I and all who saw him expected him to recover. My treatment was positive proof that I was right as to his complaint, for he had never improved a bit under the other two doctors. But within a day or two after I left, he got rapidly worse and died. So any triumph was doubtful in the eyes of the public after all. His right lung was totally or nearly useless for such long continued influenza, and I expect he either got a relapse from want of care, or else the left lung became affected as well as the right. And in that case, of course, he had nothing to breathe with, and could not last an hour. Indeed, if he had not been a most powerful man, and the disease so completely confined to the right side, as, as it was when I saw him, and had been all alone by his own account, he could never have lived as long as he did. He was, so far as we can judge, one of the most wicked wretches I have ever met with, but I did venture to give him a dose of advice now and then, and he seemed to think something of it, but I regret much that I did not endeavor to do more. We doctors see death in his mildest and most dreadful forms, yet how little we prospered by it in general. A week ago yesterday, it was election day here for MPPs, and I voted for the first time in my life. You can't think how big I feel in consequence. My political opinions have been of a very miscellaneous description hitherto, I think you will allow. But I have endeavored to find out exactly what they are lately, and after careful examination, I find I've come to the conclusion that democratic principles of government are, in the present state of Canada, the best suited to her. So, I gave my vote to the radical candidate, that is to say, the one in favor of the last ministry. For we have many species of radicals in this country. I will write again before long and will tell you more of my money affairs, etc. Believe me, with best wishes for a happy new year, your affectionate son, Francis Codd. By 1854, young Dr. Codd had fallen in love, gotten married, and eventually moved to Toronto where he raised a family and had a long and productive life until he passed away in 1915. Undoubtedly, after telling many, many stories of his frontier life while in Moffatville, late in the 1840s. Before we end today's show, we'd like to ask a favor. 
We think there are more than a few great storytellers in the Pembroke area who could match Dr. Codd's keen observations about the ever-changing social and economic life of Pembroke. We're not going to ask you to make up fictional stories about what happened here in 1847. No, we have a better idea. We'd like to know a thing or two about what some of you saw in 1947, or for that matter, almost any year in the 20th century. We'd like to record your local observations, stories, or memories of the lives that have been lived here locally, as Dr. Codd once did. You don't even have to write it all down in a series of letters. We want to make it much easier for you by collecting those stories with a digital voice recorder. So if that sounds like something you'd like to get involved with, either in having your local oral history recorded, or perhaps helping to record someone else's oral history, we've got a handout here. We'd ask you to take it home, if not sign up before you leave today, for a free seminar about how to record oral history that we will be offering here in the next few weeks or so at the Pembroke Public Library. Just imagine the stories that are waiting for us all if we only ask the right question. Just imagine that crowd who might gather here 173 years from today in 2,193 and what they might think if they heard somebody way back in 2020 tell them about what life was like here in Pembroke in 1947. Our show today was performed by Danielle and Roger Paul and myself, Kristen Marchand. It was written and produced by Barry Conway. From all of us here at the Pembroke Public Library and Opiango Readers Theatre, we hope you have a good day. Thank you for being here and keep those letters coming.